0: And welcome, uh, my name is Andrew Dunkley and I'm the host of the Space Nuts podcast and it's so great to have your company here for episode 300, <laughs> count them, 1, 2, <laughs> 300, wow, uh, we can't believe it, uh, Fred can't believe it, Marnie can't believe it, the pets can't believe it, <laughs> Uh, Before we get into the show proper, uh, I'll just explain a bit about what's going on. Uh, We've got a couple of segments that we've set up if we need them, uh, but uh, we are going to encourage questions via the the webcasts on uh, Facebook and on YouTube, and Hugh, back in the studio, is going to be keeping an eye on those for us and firing them through to me, and we can um, just ask Fred ad hoc questions which he absolutely loves, don't you, Fred?
1: <laughs> yes, especially when I know the answer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll um, we'll make it up if we don't know. Well, that's they always do anyway. Generally, so. how it works. Yes. Uh, and Marnie is here to um, to do the interview proportion of the show, and that, that's how we're going to get started. So, uh, if everybody's ready, yes, we will. Well, we will. We will hit the magic button that only works one in three occasions.
1: (laughs) 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts.
2: Astronauts report it feels good.
0: Hello again and thank you for joining us on another episode of Space Nuts. It is episode 300. Oh my goodness, can you believe it? I can't, I can't even count that high. But here we are and it's so good to have your company I am Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining me, as always, is the good professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. Episode three hundred. Who would have thought it? <laughs> I know, <laughs> and and it's it's so hard. I didn't. I nearly didn't make it, Fred, because uh, one of my colleagues at the radio station uh, has called me on the weekend and said, uh, "I've got COVID, Andrew. Just thought I'd let you know." Oh
1: no! And oh, we work no.
0: closer together at the station than anybody, so mm. I've been on ready alert. But so far, so good. But that doesn't mean much, does it? Mm-hmm. But uh, look, um, I'm here and that's the main thing. Now, Fred, we've got a lot to get through today. Uh, we've got uh, bloopers, which came from the audience, a, a request for bloopers. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, there's a couple of topics we might be able to discuss pending uh, the live question scenario. And, of mm-hmm. course, we've got an interview segment. Would you like to introduce us or reintroduce us? Because Marnie's been on the program before to our interviewer
1: extraordinaire? Well, our interviewer extraordinaire just happens to be somebody who's sitting uh, not in the next room to me, but about three rooms away. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Who knows both me and uh, you very well. She knows me better than she knows you, Andrew, as you might expect. She doesn't want to know me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) we weren't going to say that. Um, So Marnie and I have been a team for 15, 16 years now uh, and we do all kinds of exciting things and Marnie is the mastermind behind all that. Her background is in travel and events and so we have travelled all over the world taking science tours uh, to some of the most exotic places uh, and had a ball and in some of the places we go to uh, we come back with COVID-19 which is what happened on the last tour Uh, you know you get look our our, our tour groups get every uh, every facility that you might want so um, we thought it would be brilliant if Marnie was um, able to Partake in episode three hundred, and to put the screws on both you and me in terms of difficult interview questions—ones that we perhaps would hope nobody would ask. Didn't know I was going to get raked into this. So, <laughs> so right.
0: I'm, I'm usually the one asking the questions. You know, that, <laughs> you don't? are.
1: That's right. Yeah. Well, it's my my way of getting my own back on you. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, and boys and girls in the listening audience, let me introduce to you Ms. Marniog, uh, the executive director thing of the Australasian <laughs> Dark Sky Alliance uh, and uh, Dark Sky traveler
2: and, and it does, a station podcaster
1: and the, yes yes Dark Sky Conversations <laughs> podcast. So she's got the Dark Sky Conversations t shirt on. I did. And it,
2: yes.
0: and it does say thing on a business card, too.
2: <laughs> That's my official title. And I have to say how delighted I am here to be here with you gentlemen today as your backup guest after your very special guest. <laughs> <laughs> is it is a real
0: honor to
2: be the backup. Yes.
0: We, we had two dropouts. So you oh, were the string. Okay. Thank you.
2: That makes me feel very, very privileged.
0: Well, we thought we'd get this off to the adequate start that we're all used to.
2: <laughs> well, you may as well start as you finished, yes, yes. Yes,
0: yes. yes. Well, uh, it's over to you, Marnie. Yes. So,
2: well, that's, that was, you know, I have to say congratulations, 299 episodes ago and, several, and probably a couple of months before that, Fred came to me and said, oh, you know, Andrew Dunkley wants to do this podcast. And I said, why? It'll never work. <laughs> You'll never get an audience. No one will listen to you. You've got better things to do with your time, Fred. But the question remains, Why? Why did you do it? So, Andrew, I'll throw that to you. Um, I
0: (laughs) used to interview Fred uh, every week on my radio show when I worked for the ABC, and it was one of the most popular segments that I I did. Uh, You can do the the hard yards with the politicians and and all those other people in your program and and talk turkey about the economy and all that stuff that really excites me and puts a breakfast audience to sleep. But... More people would ask me questions like, and you're going to love this, they'd say, is Fred really as nice as he sounds? <laughs> no. It's true. That was the most common question. And and it was the most popular segment. Even though if you ask Fred a question, you can sit back and relax for 20 minutes until he finishes the answer. But that's... that's um, and, and, and when it came time for me to move on and, um, you know, left Fred swinging in the breeze, uh, I, I ran into Hugh one day down in Sydney who also left the ABC around the same time as me and said, what are you up to? He said, oh, I've started a podcast company. I went, oh, interesting. Uh, what are you looking for? He said, oh, anything and everything. I, he said, have you got any ideas? I said, what about Fred Watson? and his eyes lit up and yeah. that's kind of how it happened uh, because it was such a fun thing to do and it was so popular i thought it would translate well into a into a podcast and so we
2: bit right. it off
1: and we've been chewing ever since.
2: Yeah, no,
1: fantastic. <laughs> we're we're seeing how it, you know, just seeing how it goes. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. still in still in see, test phase. See, see whether it's worth keeping going. Yeah. <laughs> well,
2: don't listen to your wife, Red, because she's got no idea. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, we're we're just taking the same approach as Virgin Galactic. We'll we'll lift off eventually. Eventually,
2: mm. yeah. Mm. So I guess that kind of leads me to the next question. You know, most um from podcasting school, which, of course, I haven't attended and I don't think you have either. Um, uh, most people talk about the, the conversation, con- conversational style working. That obviously works between you guys. You, you banter backwards and forwards. But I want to ask the question, how many times have you actually met face-to-face to do the <laughs> podcasts or even in real life?
0: To do the podcast, we've been face-to-face once in 300 episodes. Fred just dropped into Dubbo one day and uh, came to my office and we just recorded it on my work desk through the computer sharing a microphone, (laughs) old-fashioned style. But no, only once, only once. And uh, how many times have we seen each other face-to-face in 25 years, Fred? Mm. Probably... It it will be half a dozen probably
1: yeah, it would That's be. about yeah. it. it. Would be um, because um, Andrew's been you know when, when you were connected with the ABC you were kind enough to, to act as MC for some of the events that we put on, um, particularly the Alison Levick lecture. I remember in uh, in Dubbo one time with Penny Sackett as a speaker, mm. uh, and you you uh, hosted that. So we we, we have done st- stuff together. Actually, I think I think half a dozen is an underestimate because you might remember there was a period. When I used to come into your studio every month to talk to Lisa Hampshire uh, yeah, that's right. on, uh, on mornings, um, we had an hour-long Q&A session, which resulted in the book, Why is he writing this Upside Down? That's where <laughs> most of those questions, questions came from.
0: So, so many, I how think, many quest- How many questions did you get on that show? Uh,
1: well, in the book, there are 148. Yeah, uh, I don't
0: think there were that many. <laughs> <laughs>
1: There were great questions as well. And a lot of them, you know, R- Dubbo for our listeners is is in regional New South Wales. It's a town that is surrounded by a lot of uh, open country. Uh, and a lot of uh, people who live on the land and work on the land actually listen to that show. And they were the ones who could get out and look at the night sky and see it in all its glory. It was fabulous. Uh, some of the questions we got, really detailed ones about, um, you know, what they could see in, in, in the night sky. Fantastic mm.
0: stuff. Just a uh, Quick piece of homework. I understand we're having trouble getting out on Facebook at the moment, but we're working on YouTube, and thanks to Carrie Brown, who's put a link to YouTube on Facebook for people to switch over. So, wow. oh, brilliant! yeah, apologies for that, but that's beyond our control.
2: Mm. That's live.
0: live radio is yeah. the same.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so picking up from what you just said, then Fred, um, you were talking about the night sky in, in Dubbo and Brown obviously. And my my podcast is Dark Sky Conversations, and I on that I, I asked people, you know, where was the darkest sky you've ever seen, and and what 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 it led you to, and. Uh, Look, look well, let me throw it to you both. Fred, what, what was the darkest sky you've ever seen
1: and what did <laughs> it lead you to? Well, you know about this one, um, because I think I spoke to you on the phone afterwards. Um, there was one night at Siding Spring Observatory, so uh, Australia's National Observatory. I was astronomer uh, in charge there for 20 years. Uh, the biggest telescope, uh, or the biggest visible light telescope in Australia, uh, and on a very dark site. And it's a site that um, w- when the skies are clear, it's so dark um, in, in terms of the absence of artificial light, that you can see by the you know by the stars, you can walk around easily by the stars. Um, and in fact, um, we've demonstrated that the Milky Way actually casts a shadow uh, on the ground. Uh, if, if you hold your hand out on a on a night when the Milky Way is blazing overhead at siding spring, uh, you can see a shadow of your hand. But the so, on sorry, on the ground.
2: Ma- on is the they, ground, how yeah. How they measure the Bortle scale? Just to interrupt.
1: It's it's one of the yeah. characteristics of the Bortle scale. That's right. A Bortle scale is a scale of uh, indicators as to how free of light pollution your sky is. But uh, the night I'm thinking of, um, I came out of the. Uh, of the telescope dome, and we used to have, well, there it still is, but it's rebuilt now because the original one burnt down, uh, a lodge, uh, an astronomer's lodge where where astronomers go to sleep during the day after they've worked at night. And it's a well-worn path for me. I knew I could find my way without any trouble. Uh, And um, so uh, off I set and then very quickly realised that actually the sky was completely overcast and there were no stars. And I could not see a thing. I was fully dark adapted. I couldn't see anything. So I thought, well, I know it's this way somewhere. Um, and then I fell off the mountain. <laughs> so, um, And uh, I didn't hurt myself, but it was uh, it was a salutary lesson. Uh, I stood up, had no idea where I was. There was just a glimmer of light coming from the doorway of the telescope uh, because there was a safety light in there. So I made my way back towards that, went up to my office, Got a flashlight and came back and did a repeat performance. That was the darkest night I ever remember. Yeah.
0: You're very lucky if you were falling off that mountain. It's a heck of a long drop.
1: Yeah, well, there are bits of it that aren't that far. Um, so the bit I fell up was only a you know, a foot or something like that. But, uh, yeah, it, it was a stupid thing to do, uh, to embark on a trip like that without a flashlight. So I never mm. did it again.
2: What about you, Andrew?
1: I honestly could not tell you. I know mm. that's pretty lame, mm. but
0: um, I can't recall because I've lived in cities for a long time and um, I'm surrounded by artificial light. So uh, I, I think probably uh, when I was in Boy Scouts years mm. and years and years ago, we did a hike to the top of Carey's Peak in Barrington Tops. Oh, okay. And there's not a shred of light. There's no civilization up there whatsoever. Mm. It's Deliverance Country and um yeah it was particularly dark that night because uh there was uh it was overcast um it was cold it was uh, as it turned out, right next to a 100-foot cliff, we didn't know it was there. So <laughs> it turned
1: out
0: problem. the next morning we camped right on the edge of it and we didn't even see it. So that was probably our darkest, <laughs> our darkest night, the so darkest two, night I've experienced. Yeah. Two near misses there with darkness. It was pretty near miss, yeah. We yeah. had no clue. But it rained for the two days we were up there and we just lived in flowing water because it was <laughs> yeah. torrential rain in, in a campsite. Mm. It was about as much fun as... Um, Pulling teeth, I think that uh, we still talk about it. I think the funniest thing was on the way down. One of the uh, one of my mates was um, desperate to relieve himself, and he did, and he wiped his um, bottom with stinging nettle leaves. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Andrew, wasn't me. Wasn't
1: me. <laughs> oh, oh, I'll yes. never forget Andrew. it.
0: Ooh. Yeah, oh, no.
1: excuse me. I'm so we didn't get to see
0: in. any stars there at all. It was just. Well, um, he probably did. Yeah, he saw a lot. <laughs> he saw a lot. But uh, yeah, that would be the darkest night, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's funny memory. Interesting. What
0: about you, Marnie? Yeah. Um. You dark skies aficionado, you. Yeah. Yeah, actually.
2: I, yeah, I, I I still think Sighting Springs got some of the strongest memories for me with taking mm. groups up and, and showing them the night sky and, and walking through dark places and just thinking, you know, people saying, I need my torch, I can't do this, and even and, it, and it's and it's still quite light. You know, we've, we've become very habituated to have light in our environment even when we don't really even need it. Um, I was going to think, I did think of a story, but I can't, yeah, no, I can't well, think of
0: one. Oh, you could work in radio the way you forgot yeah.
2: that. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, what I was thinking of was really was to to talk about the fact that you know I would have thought that your um, interest and enthusiasm for space may have been started by dark sky experience, and because often when I ask my podcasters that that's what they say, you know they were they were attracted to their profession from it. So um, and then. Maybe what would you have done if you hadn't been doing space nuts podcasts and, and interested in space? What would have been your thing? And you talked about near misses, um, Andrew. Maybe it's golf. <laughs> oh, um,
0: I, I am a I adore golf. I love playing. Um, it really gives me somewhere to vent. But uh, I, I would have done that anyway. But uh, my my first love is radio, and I just see podcasting as an extension of that. Mm. And mm. uh, it's, it's a similar process. It's really just a um, um, more casual approach to interviewing and, and dialogue between hosts and guests. And radio is basically that. Um, and, and I'm still doing radio, so mm. I'm still doing what I love to do every morning mm. on top of a full-time job, on top of this, on top of writing books, um, you know the the plan is to wind back sometime this year, but uh, I I just enjoy it so much I I don't really want to stop. Why stop doing something that you've been paid to do all your life that
1: you love? Yeah. So what
2: about I, I'll keep
1: keep doing radio for sure. Mm.
2: Yeah, Fred, did you want to... what
1: What would I have done if I hadn't been
2: doing podcasting? Totally...
1: Oh well, as you know, um the other great love in my life is music. And, oh, so you're um... going to say me. <laughs> After you, my other great love is music. <laughs> um, so, um, so yeah. So, uh, and as you also know, um, there was a time a long, long time ago when, uh, when I um, was well on the way to becoming an out-of-work professional musician. In fact, I was for a while uh, while I um, tried to fund myself through my master's degree. Uh, so that's what I would have done, I think, had I not been totally captivated by the stars uh, and captivated by uh, Marni Og and uh, Dark Skies and things like that. <laughs>
2: Good answer, Fred. Good answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to sort of wind this up slowly. But um, my, my question is, I, I mean, yes, the conversational style, your enthusiasm between you both, your ability to banter backwards and forwards all, all makes this a success and has driven you to the 300 episodes. But there's also the audience in this. So what part have they played? Is there a particular erudite question or someone in particular or the most far-flung listener that you've had, you know, furthest part of the globe, I mean, from, from Australia? What stands out in your memory with these this, this wonderful audience that support you and make it happen?
0: I think it's the collective interest. They, they've, they're all on the same page in terms of their interest in astronomy and space science. I love the fact that they are the people that have kept us going. Uh, if they hadn't got on board with us, this would have ended a long time ago. Uh, I also like the fact that they created their own Facebook page <laughs> where they can talk to each other and share each other's astronomical photos or, or articles that they find interesting. Uh, the audience is also the group that came to us and said, "Well, you know, we want to give back. We we love what you do. We'd like to put some money into this," and created the um, the option to for people to become patrons. None of that was our idea. It was it was all audience driven. So I. I that speaks for itself without the audience without the people that that discovered us and stuck by us we we
1: would be nothing so i thank them for that Uh, and the you know the thing that um inspires me and they are inspiring our our listeners and watchers Mm. andrew is the complete um there's a wide range of uh of you know the 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 level of um perhaps knowledge uh, in terms of things in space and things in astronomy. Uh, but everybody feels able to put put in their questions, uh, ranging from really quite, you know, almost basic questions to really detailed questions about the nature of the universe and, uh, you know, the constituents in it. And and that is a, a huge range of, of interests and perhaps abilities in terms of, of phrasing, you know, picking out what questions will be will be of interest but there's a common ground to all of them all of these people just love space and astronomy and it it shows it radiates in the questions and in that regard I think Andrew and I have got a you know a bond with the with the listening audience Uh, both of them actually um, not just one member of the audience but both of them no no we 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 do know that we we're very very fortunate actually in having the number of people who subscribe to space notes uh, it's staggering and uh, a great tribute to the people out there who've got a strong interest and and who think it is worthwhile um sitting down whether they're in their car on the way to work or at, at work or uh, or at home uh sitting down and listen to us for for 3 quarters of an hour while we ramble on about that stuff <clears throat>
2: yeah There you are. Well, I have to congratulate you both. I think it's a marvellous effort. I think the audience is testimony to your ability to engage people, to pick up on each other's questions and answers and to work together. And I wish you all the best in the next 300 episodes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) By which time I'll be 105.
2: (laughs) We'll have another cat.
1: We'll have another cat.
0: <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, well, look, I, I hope it goes on and on and on because it's just too much fun not to keep doing.
1: And yeah, It is a lot of fun, that's right. Yeah, I,
0: I think it's, uh, and, you know, during these last couple of years when things have been so bleak around the world, I'm, I've got messages from people saying it's just so good to get away from all that and enjoy something that I love. So I think that's, um, I think that's really nice. Really nice, Marnie. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you um, helping us out today for episode three hundred. Lovely to see you.
2: Thank you for letting me be third best.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, you're the star. Well, I'm I'm so used to being third best, I'd share the love.
2: (laughs) I'm going to jump off, so I'll wish you all the best. All right,
0: yeah. Thanks, Marnie. Marnie. See you. And you are listening to and watching uh, episode. 300 of the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson.
1: Space Nuts. But you turn it on and off again and it seems to be all right. Yeah. Okay. So well, that'll be good. And my levels are all right?
0: Uh, you sound great, yes. Yeah. I know that-, that, but my levels are all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: dear. <Da>, ba tish
0: <laughs> Yeah, one of the great moments, <laughs> yes. if there is such a thing on this show. Mm. Now, uh, I want to encourage people to send us some questions without notice for Fred. So if you would like to do that, uh, you can do that on the YouTube chat because we're still having trouble getting Facebook to work. Uh, But I know lots of messages are being spread around on Facebook to get people to hit the YouTube link so that they can watch. And I know it's working because I'm looking at myself right now. And whatever I said five minutes ago is now appearing. No, it's not okay. that long. It's just a slight delay. But we're getting uh, questions, and uh, got one straight off here, Fred. If you want to tackle it, uh, from Kaz, why is the Oort cloud a sphere and not a belt?
1: Ooh, Ooh. that's, that's a an all-round great question. It's a great question. Yeah. Um, sorry, I've just dropped my pen. I usually make a note of these questions so that I can kind of write them down later. Bit, okay. As he, falls he off his stool.
0: Here's this live radio scenario again. I, I could tell you a story about a live radio situation very quickly. I um, I had a live guest once, and she was super duper nervous. I said, "Just relax. Everything's fine. I'll ask the questions. You answer them. And you know, I'll take care of you." I always I always try to tell people that. Anyway, I asked the first question. And she just sat there like this, and that was the whole interview. The, oh the very next day, not kidding. I had a lady in. She said, oh, "I heard that interview yesterday. Oh, that poor woman." And I said, "I oh, know. I tried my best, but she was just too scared, and she froze." She said, "Well, I won't do that."
1: And guess what happened? She did exactly the same thing <laughs> two days yeah. in a row. <laughs> anyway, you've got your pen now. I've got. I've done it. I've written. I've written Oort cloud down on my bit of paper. There it is. Why is the Oort cloud a sphere and not a belt? It's. Um, I, I think the answer is to do with where the Oort cloud came from, uh, and that is that it's the sort of debris on the edge of the cloud of gas and dust that collapsed to become the solar system. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, a, a great question that might be allied to this is, is the Oort cloud rotating? Uh, because that's what makes things flat um, when they rotate. The, 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 the gravitational interaction, you know, with the with the fact that these objects are rotating, pushes them into into a flat disc, a bit like the rings of Saturn, which are lots and lots of particles of debris. But the Oort cloud is so far away from the sun uh, that whilst it is gravitationally bound to the sun, it feels the sun's gravity, and that's what stops it, you know, f- fading away altogether uh it's it's not um it it's not so close that it actually gets this this motion that that uh, essentially collapses it into a a flat plane um i think the best way to think of it is just as a as a fossil remnant of the the cloud of dust and gas that formed the formed the solar system mm. and, and that 's pretty easy to imagine i mean you, you know you might say, well, why is the sun spherical and not a not a disc um, and that 's because the the the, you know, the the gas pressure and the rotation all balance out that there 's probably a similar story, but at a much 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 lower level uh, with the Oat cloud it 's stable as a as a sphere but a great question one yeah. i one I have never been asked before. There
0: you are. You might not have been asked this one either. Uh, thanks, Kaz. Uh, Paul says uh, Maxi J one hundred and twenty plus zero seven zero is lying on its side like Uranus. Could it have been knocked on its side before it became a black hole when it was a star, like it was hit by another star?
1: Yeah, we've t- we've t- we talked about this object, didn't we? This is the one. I Think so. Uh, which. Um Got us into trouble with uh, with uh, the semantics about um, you know it's it's a, a bit acute like Uranus that was the um, the, the answer in that particular case uh, uh, because its angle was acute and the angle of this black hole's axis is tilted to the plane of the accretion disk um, it, and it, it is still a puzzle as to why that should be uh, but yes maybe maybe there was. Um, an, an impact of some sort, whilst b- before the before it collapsed to become a black hole, um, I, the, the problem is that the accretion disk uh, actually, uh, it, it, you know, the, the accretion disk really relates to the, the 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 what you might call the equator of the of the star that was the was the star before the black hole. Um, I, I would imagine that. Um, it's very hard to decouple the rotation of a black hole and make its spin axis anything other than perpendicular to the accretion disk. But this one is, and we don't know why. So I apologise for that garbled answer, but <laughs> I think our listener's question is probably as good as it gets at the moment. No, that's fine. Uh, thank you, Paul. Um,
0: board broke build has... It's a great username. Uh, how much gravity did it take to bend light, or maybe how much gravity does it take to bend light?
1: Not much, actually. Um, in terms, that's, of the, that's the official answer. The not official much. answer is not much, yeah. An adequate uh, amount. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, the bottom line, uh, the, the best way to um, put this into, into figures uh, is, if you think about the sun, uh, which is a large object, its mass is much 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 greater than the mass of the earth uh and um it's it 's a star it 's a you know it 's a kind of fairly modest sized star, but it is still a star uh the light that just goes past the sun and doesn't quite Get, if you think of a star behind the sun, uh, the light of that star just passing the limb of the sun, in other words, really close up to the sun, that gets bent through an angle of 1.75 arc seconds. And an arc second is 1 3,600th of a degree. It's a tiny, tiny angle. And one and three quarters of those is the angle that light is bent bent by due to an object with the mass of the sun. So that's that 's the answer to the question there is it really takes a lot of mass to significantly bend the light uh, you know to significantly bend a beam of light, whether it comes from a background star or wherever uh, and that 's why the most um prominent effects of what we call gravitational lensing, which is a result of this, you know, of light being bent by gravity. Uh, The most obvious examples of it come from clusters of galaxies. That's where the bending is at its most, because they are the most massive objects in the universe. Mm. Uh, A mere star like the sun bends it through one and three-quarter arc seconds. Uh, That was the angle, by the way, that was measured by uh, Eddington in the 1919 eclipse that demonstrated that Einstein's theory was correct. Mm. Okay.
0: Now, I uh, have a, a question from Dipper. Uh, where do we go when we reach the limits of our solar system? Um, Mars, moons, then
1: where? Um, do you mean, I, I guess, um, in terms of exploration? Oh, uh,
0: well, I think in terms
1: of uh, human more human of the
0: geography. Um, or, or maybe it is human limits. It doesn't really elaborate on that.
1: Yeah. Um, so, because the solar system's big, it goes out to the Oort cloud, as we've already established. Um, yeah, but where, where, where would in terms, certainly in terms of the robotic exploration of the solar system, uh, everywhere is the province of these robots. Um, from you know Mercury, from the Sun's atmosphere, in fact, uh, with the Parker Solar Probe flying through the corona at the moment, yeah. uh, out to uh, the furthest object that we've ever visited, which uh, used to be called Ultima Thule and is now called Arakoth, uh, that's funny little, um, well, it looked like a snowman, but it's actually two discs joined together. Uh, way out beyond the orbit of pluto, um, so all of th- these places have been explored robotically, but in terms of human exploration, well Mars is clearly number one uh yeah. in terms of it, the, the the you know it being the most similar object in the solar system to the earth, it is still dramatically different, but it 's most the most similar object um, and probably the easiest for humans to 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 actually get onto and walk on. Uh, but I think, yes, the moons of Mars are, uh, are other places that might actually uh, be intriguing for human exploration. And in fact, a number of people have suggested that um, the uh, biggest moon or the bigger moon of Mars, Phobos, uh, would be a place, would be a good staging post for um, to, to, to mount a base uh, from which to explore Mars, because it's a lot easier to get a spacecraft uh, to touch down on an object uh, like Phobos, which has got virtually n- no gravity. Um, I can't remember the figure. It's. I think if I remember, remember if I remember rightly, the escape velocity on Phobos. I think it's forty three kilometers per hour. Oh, you could get um, so off on your push bike. You, you nearly do it on your, well, that's right, nearly do it on your push bike. Um, in fact, yes, I, I've exceeded that on my push bike. I've been Me up to too. 50 on mine, yeah. When, when I was 16, I couldn't do it now. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, uh, anyway, yeah, so so I, I think that's a really good suggestion. Um I'd love to see people walking on Titan, uh, you know, Saturn's moon Titan with uh, with its lakes of, of, of frozen hydrocarbons. But imagine the spacesuits you'd need to keep you oh, warm in yeah. a surface temperature of 100, minus 190 Celsius. No, thank you. No, I don't think so either. Mm. Uh,
0: now, uh, David's got a very short and sweet question. Do photons actually have a colour? Uh,
1: well, yes, uh, in relation to their... Um, to the energy that, that they carry, uh, and, and uh, I mean, <laughs> it, you know, if you if you grab a photon, it it doesn't have a color; it's just a packet of energy. Mm. Uh, but um, it's it's the, the 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 wavelength of the of the light that the photon represents is what gives it its color, and I guess that's very much to do with the way we perceive color. Uh, so I think, uh, but I think that's a lovely question. Do photons have color? Um, yes, I, I, you know, in terms of of uh, how we understand them, I think they do. They they might not be very vivid colors, but they nevertheless represent colors.
0: <laughs> okay, thanks, David. Uh, Kyle says, I've heard that the edge of the solar system is about one light year away, while others say it's more like two light years, meaning the voyages are
1: still within the system. Yeah. Which is more accurate? Um, the, there's no doubt that voyages, the Voyagers are still uh, within the solar system. Um, the I think Voyager 1, if I remember, it's in the region of 20 light hours, something mm. like that. Away, so nowhere near light years yet. And yes, that figure of one to two light years is about right. It's um, that's the sort of radius we're not exactly sure, but that's the kind of radius that we think the Oort cloud is at. Something like ten to twenty percent of the distance to the nearest star, which would be in the region of a light year. Um,
0: that's, that's a huge distance, still, isn't it? That it's
1: it's a monumental distance. Yeah. So, uh, so, so well. Voyager 1, the most distant human-made object, um, people talk about it having left the solar system, uh, and it, it's not really the case. What it's left is the sun's magnetosphere, uh, what's called the heliosphere, the, sun's, the region of the sun's magnetic influence. So it's crossed that boundary um, between the sun's magnetic influence and the general uh, magnetism of interstellar space. Uh, and in that re- respect, you could say it's left the solar system, but physically it hasn't. It, it's got a long, long way to go before we can say it's left the solar system.
0: Yeah, there was uh, a big song and dance about when it passed through the what they called the heliopause, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. Because uh, it, it made some weird sound in its transmission, and they went, oh, it's out of the solar system now. But it's. <laughs>
1: yeah, The trouble is, I think it was Voyager 2 mm. that crossed the heliopause and then crossed it again. And then crossed it again because it wasn't a constant because it wobbles that's right the heliopause is a fairly bubbly thing you know it's a it's a it's a kind of surface where magnetism changes Mm. uh, but it's not static um as the magnetic field of the of the you know interstellar space and the sun change
0: uh, ben says "I have a question with the increasing number of assets being deployed into space how do we continuously monitor uh, monitor them all and retrieve their data considering they are in constant motion
1: yeah well that's right that's the job of you know the, the these various agencies that um, that do exactly that uh, the the radar systems that track these objects the communication systems which are all over the world uh, that that uh, Talk to them by radio. Uh, it's a big, big operation, and there are um, there are international bodies that sort of oversee a lot of that. But many, much of it de- um, devolves down to national bodies and the, the particular commercial entities that are controlling these things. So it's a mammoth task, but it actually works. We, um, I think it's oh gosh i 'm pulling numbers out of the air here uh, um, If I remember right it 's in the region of twenty thousand objects that attract uh, these are things bigger than one hundred millimeters across mm. uh, tracked by radar so so it, it, to have a database of all you know where all these things are is is really important and, and I might just add a comment here, Andrew sorry to ramble on about it no, but okay. one of one of the one of the things that astronomers are asking for from the space industry, in the light of these satellite constellations that uh, are are about to make a huge contribution to the <laughs> the artificial brightness of the night sky uh, astronomers don 't want to have their uh, exposures their images um, it, destroyed or interrupted by a satellite going through it uh, and if you've got that number of satellites the key piece of information that you need if you're going to you know close the shutter while the satellite tracks through which is one way of doing it you need to know exactly where that spacecraft is within almost a few meters now that information is not currently publicly available so it's a big uh, a big ask of the space industry to make that sort of data or those kind of data available to to the astronomy community and Probably the the general public at large.
0: This next question from Honor uh, dovetails into that nicely. Will the next generation look up at the night sky and see thousands of satellites and space junk travelling across the sky? What is being done to get rid of space junk?
1: Well, that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question. The sting in the tail there. What's being done about it? And and really, um, it's actually quite a contentious issue. Uh, it, in many ways, it is because you know if you think of ways to, to shoot down bits of space junk, that could be seen as a, a belligerent act, and suddenly you've got all kinds of international uh, issues at hand. Mm-hmm. So um, the, what's what is being done is uh, that um, if you're launching spacecraft now, you've got to have a way of bringing them down, basically. Uh, and and that might mean that it's just in an orbit that will naturally decay within four or five years, which is what Starlink is doing. The the uh, SpaceX uh, satellite constellation, Starlink uh, satellites, I think, have a relatively short lifespan, so they, their orbits will decay. They'll drop into the upper atmosphere. They'll burn up harmlessly, and that, that's the end of that. But there are many, many more spacecraft that are a much bigger problem. They're in higher orbits, um there are been a number of experiments that you and i've talked about several times andrew about how you you might send you know sweep up satellites up there to try and grab things either with uh, some of them have got grappling irons, some of them have got nets, some of them are magnetic. Harpoons. Uh, harpoons, yeah, There's a harpoon was one of them too. D- different methods to try and grab spacecraft, so you, you kind of put a brake on it, so it naturally then decays, uh, its orbit decays into the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, but the first part of the question is a really interesting one, because that's really what faces astronomers uh, in the um, you know in the next 10 years we expect there could be as many as 100,000 satellites in orbit around the earth by the end of the decade uh, now um, both OneWeb and space x uh, with their starlink satellites um, both of those are I've taken steps to to um, basically put them below naked eye visibility. Mm. So when they're in their normal operational orbits, you won't see them. SpaceX, because they're fitted with these visors, the visor sats that shade the sun, one web because they are actually at, um, I think it's 1,200 kilometers their orbital height, which makes them faint. Uh, but there will be satellites which are transiting between their operational orbits and their launch orbits or re-entry. And there could be, um, several thousand of those, which will be visible to the naked eye uh, at any one time, so it's inevitable that we're going to see more more satellites with the unaided eye. Now, astronomers see them all the time, um, it's, that's, the, that's the big issue for, for astronomers to face. Uh, the good news is that I think the space industry and the astronomical community are talking. On the 1st of April, there was a new uh, International Astronomical Union Centre uh, to deal with this that was formed, which um, we watch with great interest as to how they proceed. Mm.
0: All right. I think we'll take a breath. Okay. <laughs> and then do you want to uh, just tackle one of the topics that you offered Why for don't this we week?
1: Talk about the moon. Yes. Yes, indeed. All right. <laughs> We're going to
0: take a little break. It's only going to take a few seconds from Space Nuts episode 300. 300. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Right, I'm just doing a test to see if this is recording. Testing one, two, three, and I can see a waveform.
1: What about you, Fred? Well, I have my own waveform. You know, I carry yeah. it with me everywhere I go. It's certainly not on your head. <laughs> 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 Thank you, and good night. <laughs> Oh, uh, dear. What a crack if it's guy. not
0: If it's not your age that I'm having a crack at it's your hairline. <laughs> not that I can talk.
1: No, well, you're doing better than me, Andrew, but you, you're still a way to go yet. <laughs> yes, I suppose.
0: <clears throat> um, I, I, my dad's still got a full head of hair and he's 84, mm. so I, I've got my hopes up. <laughs> mm. Now, uh, let's get on to this uh, interesting topic about uh, the, 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 the moon. Uh, it's... Um, we're going to talk about the differences between the, the Moon's near and far sides. Has something come up in the news of late that's uh, reinvestigating this?
1: Yeah, there it, 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 it has. And, um, of course, this uh, has the effect of, Giving the lie to what I said in Space Warp. Uh, oh, because, no. You know, as soon as you write a book on science, it's out of date because <laughs> so much is happening. Um, so, um, I think if I remember rightly, there's uh, either a section or a breakout box about why the moon's near side and far side are so different. So, the, the near side. Uh, is the side that we're familiar with. You know, we see all the, the, the grey areas, the maria. Uh, these are basalt plains, which result resulted from volcanism probably about 3.8 billion years ago. Um, but when you look at the far side... Uh, as was first done in 1959 by, I think it was Luna 2, the um, uh, Soviet uh, spacecraft that actually went around the backside of the moon and sent back pictures. Um, it's nothing like that. It's uh, it's a much more rugged uh, terrain, lots of mountains, lots of craters, um, but very little in the way of these grey lava plains that we mm. see so well on the near side. And so um, the theory that... Um, had kind of evolved over the last five, six years or so, and what I wrote about in space warp um, is that the the what 's called the tidal locking of the moon uh, this is the process that makes it face the earth continuously that happened very, very early on in the history of the earth moon system you know when when the two were probably only one hundred million years old, um, and so what you 've got is Uh, the lava world which was what the earth was like then it was basically molten rock very hot and here's the moon very close to it because it's much closer than it is now facing this side and that heats up the near side um, to high temperatures and what that does is stops um, what you might call rock rock making chemicals condensing onto it the silicates which would be vapor at that time Uh, you put a cold surface there and the silicates condense onto it and suddenly you've got rock Um, so the suggestion was that the far side is much colder so the silicates um, condensed onto that and you've got a, a, a much bigger build-up of the uh, of the of the rocky surface so that the moon's crust that's the bottom line is actually that the moon's crust is thicker on the far side than it is on the near side on the near side it's so thin that we you know it have lakes of lava on it however cut to april 2022 and we have a new theory which um has come from uh, um, lunar scientists uh, in a number of institutions, principally in the United States, uh, at uh, Purdue University, uh, Brown University, Lunar and Planetary Science Laboratory in Arizona, Stanford, uh, a whole whole lot of institutions, including, of course, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. This theory um, links the thickness of the rock on the far side with Another phenomenon, uh, or it's actually a feature on the Moon, uh, which has been known again since the early days of lunar exploration, on the backside of the Moon, near the South Pole, is something called the Aitken South Pole Basin, which is probably one of the biggest impact basins or impact craters in the whole solar system. So very early on in the Moon's history, something whacked that and created this basin that we still see Um, Now, what's happened now is that these scientists have linked the impact that created the South Pole Lake and Basin with the thickening of the Moon's far side because they've suggested that that impact would have sent, uh, as they describe it, a massive plume of heat propagating through the lunar interior. And in particular, that plume of of hot uh, material would have carried... Some of the um, some of the elements that actually themselves produce heat to the moon's near side in other words, you swipe the the, the, the moon's backside uh, near the south pole with a an impacting asteroid or something and you get um, a, a success or a progression of elements within the, the moon's mantle, the moon's interior, that go up the lunar near side. And those elements, um, uh, actually, they've got a rather nice uh, acronym. They're called creep elements, creep being K-R-E-E-P. And what it stands for is K is the potassium REE is rare earth elements, and p is phosphorus, so uh, potassium, rare earth elements and phosphorus it makes creep uh, and that those creep materials apparently have have, have um, according to this theory, have kind of gone up on the under uh, un, underneath the surface of the moon, but contributed to heating on the near side um, it 's a really interesting theory uh, which I like because it links this gigantic impact basin the Aitken Southwell basin with what we see on the near side of the moon and the difference between the near side and the far side so a lot of computer simulations uh, have been done pretty well every simulation that these scientists did actually produce a thinner crust on the near side than on the far side exactly as we see so this looks like being a pretty credible explanation for Uh, you know, for that uh, mystery of why the far side crust is thicker than the near side crust. Sounds like a rewrite is...
0: um required for it. Well
1: that's right actually um, it's it's interesting, um, I don't know whether you know this Andrew but tomorrow uh, I'm, well this afternoon I'm heading down to Canberra uh, because the National Science Centre which is called Questacon here in Australia tomorrow they're launching the book they're doing a, an official launch of Space Warp, uh, including putting it on a rocket I think and sending it up to, to do the, the real thing but uh, one of the questions I know I'm going to be asked is what would you rewrite in the book uh, in the light of present-day knowledge? (laughs) This is exactly it. There it is. Yeah. 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 Gosh. All right.
0: And we've had a misfire. I knew that would happen at some stage, uh, but that's okay because I am organized for that. Oh, are you? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, look, um, one of the things in radio is always have a backup plan. So... Here we go.
1: OK, we checked all four systems and came with a go. Space Nets. And the analysis that has been done with the Hubble telescope demonstrates that we are looking back at uh, 13.5 billion years. I beg your pardon. Let me get the right 13.8. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry, Fred. <it. coughs> I'm going to stop you no, for a second. <coughs> <coughs> oh, boy. I was trying not to cough, but
1: distress, yeah. it
0: caught up to me. <clears throat> I just got to get some water. Get
1: some water,
0: water. <clears throat> I'll keep the recorder going. I can edit it later. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs>
1: Poor old Andrews yeah. snuck out of the room. He's disappeared into the uh, anteroom yeah. looking for water to. To, to quench his oh. uh,
0: insatiable instinct. It started as a tickle and ended up as a, I don't know what, but
1: anyway, that sure. solves that. Um, I've given the editor a running commentary on your... Oh, have you? the <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, the wonders of water, I feel better now. Yeah, so I was distracted by your clear, your obvious distress and, and actually got the wrong number there, so I'm going to repeat what I said. Okay. Are we okay just to pick it up? Yep, go for it.
0: One of our rare moments where everything (laughs) fell over. They're not so rare, as it turns out. Yeah.
1: No, no. Uh, That was a classic. I have no recollection of that at all, Andrew. Oh, wow. You struggle for life there.
0: (laughs) I I must have hacked it out at one point and just put it away because I found it quite by accident the other day when I was looking for things to add to the the program. the
1: blooper list, yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, we're fast sort of eating time do you want to do a couple of more questions
1: before oh, we that would be lovely up? yes please
0: uh so, chapo is wondering what's your best pick for telescopes to get started um with this year and any major astro- astronomical events we should put in our calendar for this year i can tell you i've had a look at the calendar for this year it's a pretty ordinary year <laughs> it is yeah
1: yeah There's uh there's a, there is a lunar eclipse i think in november yeah uh, that's about it visible from a from our part of the world, um, of course. Next year, we've got a solar eclipse uh, mm-hmm. on the, if I remember rightly, the twentieth of April. I think it is, uh, which is, it crosses land uh, uh, over a very, very short neck of uh, of land in Western Australia Mount, uh, at um, Exmouth there, uh, and I think it's already kind of fully booked out for accommodation and things of that sort. Uh, but that's that's the next big thing. It will be visible as a partial eclipse, of course, throughout much of Australia, uh, but not here in the east, I don't think, if I remember rightly. So um, for telescopes, um, it, it you're kind of spoiled for choice these days, and a lot depends on how much you've got to spend, um, and what you want to do with it. Um, if you are serious about trying to get some, some deep sky well, viewing, yeah. well, that's there you are. There's um, she's a uh, Yeah, she's a ripper. I, I, I really like that telescope, Andrew. I think it's a cracking good value. Um, I can't remember what you paid for it, but it was um, something pretty reasonable. And it is effectively, it's a three-inch refractor, isn't it? I can't remember what's the diameter of the... Ninety millimeters. Ninety millimeters. There you are. Yeah. It's three and a half inches. Yeah. Uh, which which is a great size for um, a lens telescope, a refracting telescope. Uh, do you mind telling us what you paid for it? It was it was, uh, it was just under four hundred. I $400. think. four hundred dollars. Yeah, that's or right. Maybe
0: just slightly over. It wasn't they're, expensive at all. And are, are, are very very dollars. So, and I've yeah. uh, bought an attachment for it so that I can put my SLR mm. camera right into the tube, and take photos directly through the telescope. Fantastic. Yeah, and I've got to thank Sandy in Melbourne for all his help uh, oh, in, in getting me geared up because I didn't know a thing about it. Uh, he's been very good. Really good. Mm.
1: Um, so that's a telescope that uses a, a lens uh, to form the image, um, which is a, just a personal preference. I really like lens telescopes or refracting telescopes. Um, but uh, you can also get really pretty good value uh, mirror telescopes. And probably for the money you paid for that uh, refractor of yours, you'd get a bigger, maybe an eight inch, um, so... You know what's that? So 200 millimeters, uh, an eight-inch Dobsonian, and a Dobsonian is a very rudimentary reflecting telescope that's on a on a mounting that in the early days was just made out of an old wooden box mm. uh, with with bearings in it. Now they're a bit more sophisticated than that, um, but they uh, they are really good for. General stargazing, what they're not so good for is photography because you can't actually track on, on the deep deep sky objects. Uh, you could certainly photograph the moon and planets with it simply by putting your phone up to the eyepiece uh, because there's enough light comes down because they are, tend to be bigger in size. Um, so uh, it, in many ways, it's just whatever your own preference is um, uh, for for the kind of stuff you want to do for general sightseeing adopsonian 's dobsonian's really good uh shows up the planets well you get some nice views of nebulae especially if you're in a dark sky place uh, they're reasonably portable you can hide ho- it in the back of the car if you want to take it somewhere uh, where the skies are dark and very easy to set up for a bit of uh, informal uh, stargazing um but as I said, for you know, if you want to do advanced astrophotography, then they, they don't have the right kind of mechanical structure to mm. let you do that. Mm. Um, but yeah, go for it. That's the main thing. The worst kind of telescope is the one that stays permanently locked up in a cupboard and is never used. That's the that's
0: worst. That's it thing. exactly yeah. right. Uh, I haven't had many opportunities lately because of the weather, but uh, that's improving as I speak. So um, now I, I, I'll throw in one more quick question and then we'll have to do the, the competition and wrap it all up. Okay. Um, George, uh, I assume it's pronounced George or Jorg, uh, why can we okay. not see the bright centre of our galaxy? Shouldn't it be too intensely bright or so intensely bright being so relatively close to us in comparison to other galaxies of a much larger distance? Fabulous
1: question. Uh, and it, uh, and it, It actually comes down to uh, the bane of optical or visible light astronomers, and that is dust in the plane of the galaxy. The galaxy is very, very dusty. Uh, And in particular, um, the dust blocks off our view of the galactic center um, when when I was doing research on a particular class of variable stars that cluster around the galactic center back in the in the 1970s um, I was cursing this dust because it stops us uh, seeing towards the galactic center if um, if you if 're on a dark sky place and you look at the constellation of Sagittarius, which will be in our winter months, the middle of the year, uh, summer months in the northern hemisphere, um, you see that the Milky Way is at its widest there, uh, but there's... The, the the central part of it is largely blocked off by dust. So the actual nucleus of the Milky Way, the bit that is really where all the brightness is, is invisible to us. Mm. Uh, and in fact, what I was doing in my research, this is, as I said, back in the 1970s, was using some kind of, they were like almost like keyholes in the dust, a couple of them uh, discovered by a scientist called Walter Bader, uh, in the 1940s they're called Barda's window uh well, there were a couple of them um and i was peering through Barda's window trying to see these stars in the in the central region of the of the milky way now modern day infrared telescopes penetrate that dust so we've got a much better view of the center of the galaxy than we had before but of course that's not with the naked eye if the if the galaxy was dust free we would have a blazing night sky with the milky way looking so gorgeous uh in the you know in the middle of the year um it would be very very spectacular indeed but it's the dust that stops it stops us seeing it
0: there it is it's just dust it is it's just dirt dirt really yeah yeah uh and that's where we're going to wrap up episode 300 uh thanks for all your support uh it's been fabulous we never thought we'd get here um thanks for ta- taking part in the live uh, webcast today we've did have some glitches, but that's the internet for you. So hopefully we got through to as many who, um, who endeavoured to watch as we could. Uh, and, of course, we'll be back again next week with episode 301. Fred, thanks, at all. as always. Without you, we would be nothing. We really appreciate everything you do. Thanks so
1: much. And thanks to you, Andrew. Well done putting up with me for 300 episodes. Well, well done the, again.
0: That's the easy part, you putting yeah. up with me. That's the <laughs> tough bit.
1: Uh, But well done to our audience as well. It's fabulous that people are that interested. We'll talk next time.
0: We will. That's Fred Watson, astronomer at large, Professor Fred Watson, mind you. And uh, back to Hugh in the studio who's been working his tail off to keep everything going today. So thank you, Hugh. Hugh, appreciate that and everything you've done for us over the last four or five years that it's uh, been running. So amazing, amazing work. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, don't forget to visit us on our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. Keep those messages. Uh, Sorry we couldn't get to all the questions, but feel free to message them through to us on our website. We will pick them up later, as we will the stories we didn't get to go to today. But uh, thanks again. Lovely to have your company on this, the 300th episode of Space Nuts. We'll see you soon.
2: Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts Podcast. Available at Apple
1: Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your
0: favorite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bites.com.
1: This has been another quality podcast production from Bites.com.